This morning's reading is taken from Luke chapter 15, reading from verse 11 to 31. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be with you. It's just a normal Sunday, isn't it? Just a normal Sunday. Let's, um, let's pray, shall we, as we begin. Jesus, we thank you that you are kind and gracious and generous to us. And we thank you for age-old stories that you've given to us that reveal to us who you are and who you've made us to be. And Jesus, we pray that today you would continue to form us and transform us into your likeness. In your name we pray. Amen. It's, um, it's an old painting. It's an old painting painted by an old man. Uh, he's called Rembrandt. And Rembrandt painted this when he was in his 60s, which was old then as it is now. And um, he reaches the end of his life and he paints the finest painting he ever composed. Rembrandt painted the reunion of the prodigal and his father. I want you to notice this picture if you can. I know the light's not 
great on it. But it's often we look at pictures and we just kind of flick past them, don't we? We live in a world that gives us five seconds to look at an image and then we move on. But I want you to notice it this morning because in this picture is everything that you need for the years ahead. Everything. Look at the father. Look at the expression on his face. This man has been shamed. He's been humiliated. There should be a deep violence in him. There should be judgment. There should be anger. There should be something like hatred etched on his face. But there's not, is there? There's softness and warmth. You see the way he gently places his hands on his son's shoulders, like he's just holding him close. If you look at the son, the young man kneeling in front of him, he's the one who did that. He's the one who caused all of that pain, all of that shame, all of that hurt. And yet he leans into the father's embrace, doesn't he? He makes his home against the father's chest. Rembrandt has painted the son in the same color palette that he's painted the father. Everything's kind of red in this picture, isn't it? Like someone's layered that filter over it. And he's done that so that you know that they are fully reconciled. That there's now nothing in between them. Nothing that separates them. This is a picture of hope, of reconciliation, and ultimately of love. Because it's only in our decision to love each other that we can bring healing. It's only in our decision to choose love that we can bring transformation. It's only in our decision to love that broken things get made whole again, and Rembrandt has captured it perfectly. You see, he does it because a year before he painted this picture, his son died. Rembrandt knows what it's like to lose your son. And so he brings all of that emotion, that depth, that longing that he carries within him to bear on his son this morning on this picture. A year after this has been painted, Rembrandt dies. And the poets say that Rembrandt went to get his boy back, that he died of a broken heart and he went to go and find him. In this picture is everything that you need. In our passage this morning is everything that you need. Me and Alice have been a part of this church community for four and a half years and everything that I love about this church community you see in this picture. We were reminiscing um, while we were cooking dinner last night and um, Alice pointed out that she was 24 years old when we arrived here. And we, problem is we, and I was 27 and that's fine until you meet now 27 year olds and 24 year olds and I think I wouldn't give them the keys to my car let alone be the vicar of my church community. You don't know nothing 
when you're 24. I toyed with getting a haircut before this morning, but then I realized if I did that, I would cut out the greys that I've now got appearing on the side of my head. You can peer at them. The kids have started to point them out. I've got a little patch on one side. I know you've got more, Alan, but you are, with respect, older than I am. This church community has shaped us and formed us. Before we came here, um, we prayed and we asked God to bring us to a community that held three priorities. We wanted it to be a church community that was connected to its local community. We wanted it to be a church community that was alive with the spirit, that there was something vital and vibrant happening in. And we wanted it to be a place where we would make friends that we would find deep and lasting friendship. And that's happened here for us over the course of four and a half years. And we're shaped by friends and friendship, aren't we? I'm sure as you look back over the course of your life, you can point to the moments and the places and the friends and think, I'm different now because of that. Me and Alice are different now because of the four and a half years that we've spent here. We're different now because of the meals that we've shared and the things that we've laughed about together. We're different because of the cups of tea and coffee that we've drunk together at the back. We're different because of the people that we've grieved the passing of together. We're shaped by grief, aren't we? We're different because of the pandemic that we've endured and gone through together. We're different because of the times that we've worshipped together. I've been changed by the recognition that Julia is the one that quietly runs everything behind the scenes. I am um, offered Andy Pollard a lift the other day and he looked at me like I was mad because he said, I know that you're a bad driver. And I said, how do you know that, Andy? And he said, because Kev told me. And I thought, great. Not only am I a bad driver, but I'm bad enough to be talked about and now you won't get in a car. Andy is different for having been in a car with me as I'm sure Kev is every time he lets his kids get in the car with me. We are changed and formed and transformed, aren't we, by the people that we meet, by the relationships that we form. I want to encourage you this morning to choose love in everything that you do. And I do it with a heart full of gratitude and confidence because I've seen you do it time and time and time again over four and a half years. In relationships and life and friendships, things get messy, don't they? We hurt each other. We disappoint each other. We let each other down. But in those moments and in those times, we can still make a decision to choose love, can't we? Because this morning, there is everything that we need in this painting and in the story that Anne read for us. Jesus is starting to take some heat from the Pharisees, from the keepers of the laws and the rules. And they, um, they're being critical of him, they're criticizing him because he's eating with sinners. He's eating with people who don't keep the laws, who don't keep the rules, who've been outcast and ignored and shunned. But the problem with Jesus is you'll always find him on the side of the outcast, won't you? You'll always find him on the side of the downtrodden and the, and the addicted. You'll always find him on the side of those who are poor in spirit and those who are overlooked. And Jesus will always be on our side and your side's as long as you continue to hold to that, 
as long as you continue to hold to those values, to walking in that direction, Jesus will always be on your side. And so he sits down and he starts to tell stories. Jesus loves stories because stories are what makes the world go round, aren't they? When I asked you how your weekend was, you tell me a story. You tell me about what you did. You tell me about watching the match. And did you win or lose this weekend? Mon- uh, Monday night. All right. Liverpool won. Liverpool always win. That's a- <laughs> I wouldn't ask you that question. Well, we talk about the stories, don't we? We share them. Because stories are the way that we look at the world around us. They're the lens. They're the glasses that we wear. And so when Jesus sits down to tell a story to the people listening, he's giving us a new way of looking at the world. And he talks first about a shepherd who's lost a sheep. He has a hundred sheep. One wanders off and he leaves the 99 behind to go and find that lost sheep. Reckless, extravagant love. He talks about a woman who has lots and lots of coins, but somehow she's misplaced one somewhere in the house. And in a frenzy, she turns the whole thing upside down, doesn't she? She turns the whole thing upside down like you're trying to find your car keys. And she finds the coin. And then she throws a party over a single coin. She invites her friends, her neighbors round to celebrate with her. And then... Jesus tells us about a father, about a father who loses his son. And it's an old one, but a good one. And it bears retelling. A son goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. What that means is, Dad, I wish that you were dead. Dad, I wish that you'd given up the ghost and that I had your cash in my account. So let's make that happen now. He demands the inheritance. And the dad has a choice in that moment. The dad can say no, right? He's not obliged to give the money away. But he knows that you can't force love. And the dad, more than anything in the world, wants the son to love him. And he knows that if he forces the son to stay, then he'll have lost the son forever. Because the son will never be able to truly choose to love him. And so he gives the son the money and he lets the son go. And he stands on the edge of the terrace and he watches him walk off into the distance over the horizon. And we're told that the son goes away to a far and distant land. What Jesus is doing when he says that is he's letting us know that the son has gone beyond the edge of God's purposes. Uh, that uh, he would have been a, a Jewish person, a member of the tribe of Israel, and that he's gone to a far and distant land beyond the edge of God's purposes for him. And he squanders all of the inheritance in wild living. He blows it. He blows it on gambling, on wine, on prostitutes. He burns the whole lot of it. And then eventually he finds himself in a pigsty, shelling pods for them. And he knows that he has hit rock bottom and Jesus says he comes to his senses like he suddenly wakes up from a fever dream something inside him clicks and he remembers that life wasn't always like this that life wasn't always like this sitting in the pigsty shelling peas for them 
and he decides that it's time to go home. And so he goes. And all the way back towards his father's house, he's rehearsing his story, isn't he? He's rehearsing his story of what it is that he's going to say to his dad that's going to win his dad's favor back. And the dad sees the son come back over the horizon because the father has always been waiting. And this is the moment that the story hangs on. It's not the rejection of the son, the rejection of the father that matters the most. It's this moment now because the father has a decision to make. And it's obvious what the father should do. Because the father has been completely and utterly ashamed. He's been completely humiliated by what the son has done. And every time someone has asked him, where's your son gone? What what happened there? It's like he's had to retell the story and the knife has been twisted in him time and time and time again. And every time he relives the trauma and the hurt and the heartache of the betrayal, the abandonment, the abuse, the loss of relationship... And so the father should make the son pay the price. There should be justice. There should be justice. The son should come to him and beg for forgiveness and the father should send him away. Because he said that he wished that you were dead. He said that he wished that you didn't exist anymore, that you were only good for your money. And so they should be forced to live with the consequences of that. And go back to the land that they've just left. There should be justice. But love is stronger than death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like a fire. Like a mighty flame. Men can't sweep it away. You can't hold love down. You can't tether it to a post. You can't bottle it up. Love is always ready and waiting to be poured out. And in the end, love always wins. Love always triumphs. And so the father chooses to love the son and welcome him home. In that moment, when everything hangs in the balance, the father chooses love. Will you choose love in the moments when you've been hurt and embarrassed? When someone has just kept on twisting the knife into you? When it feels like they can't hurt you any more than they already have and yet somehow they just do it again because they know how to push the button? Will you still choose love? Because love is the only thing that can heal the nations. Because love is the only thing that can bring families back together, isn't it? Because love is the only thing that can truly reconcile, restore and redeem not just this church community, but Clubmore and Liverpool and this whole country. Will you choose love in those moments? Because love is costly, isn't it? Love makes you do things that you didn't expect to do. We never expected to come and live in Liverpool. That was never really on the cards for us. But we came here because we knew that there was something in this church community that we loved. And then one year and two weeks ago, two kids came to live in our house. And love bent the course. It changed the direction of our lives again. 
And now we do something that means that we can love them even better, as well as we want to. Love reaches into our stories and it changes the direction. It bends the course. Will you, in everything that you do, in every decision that you make, choose love? When you could go the other way, when you could do something different, when you could exact justice, make sure you get the price where you choose love. Interregnums are funny things, times in between vicars, because they put pressure on people. And it's been really interesting to watch how people have stepped forward over the last couple of months to take on some of the pressure and some of the responsibility, not just having a church without a vicar, but having a church without a vicar and a curate who are both leaving on the same day, which is not the best piece of planning that Jesus could have done. But in those moments of pressure, it's easy to take offense, isn't it? When the heat's on, when something hasn't gone like we want it to. It's easy to take offense, to get bent out of shape, to decide that rather than make peace, you're going to go to war. It's easy when the pressure is on in our family at home, when the rising cost of living means that we're trying to balance things and the anxiety and stress is in our houses like it's not been for a while. It's easy when your kids ask you, is there going to be a World War III? And you don't honestly know the answer to that for the pressure to get to everyone. But in those moments... You get to, and we get to, and I get to choose love again. Because love, it reaches into the story, and it changes, and it transforms everything. The family could be split. They could be cast apart forever. But the Father chooses love. And you can choose love this morning because the Father has chosen to love you. Recklessly and extravagantly. He's chosen to love you without condition, without reading your life history, without looking at the story. He has chosen to love you and to care for you. And so the Father puts his hands on your shoulders and he welcomes you home and he welcomes you in. Rembrandt's contemporaries, the people who painted at the same time as him, said that he was the first heretic of art. What they meant was, He always broke the rules. He wasn't playing by the same rules that everyone else was playing by. You see, at the time, you were meant to paint with the finest paintbrush. And everything was meant to be just so. And his critics, those people who were jealous of him, said that he painted with a trowel that he just slapped the paint on. Rembrandt was famous for um, for painting nudes for painting naked people. But the thing that he was famous for was that he didn't paint the most beautiful people he could find. He just painted normal people with normal bodies, bodies like you and I have. You see, when they said that he was a heretic, they completely misunderstood what Rembrandt was trying to do because Rembrandt wasn't trying to play by the rules. He wasn't trying to be better than his contemporaries. Rembrandt was trying to be one of the greatest of all time. And when you're trying to be one of the greatest of all time, you don't paint according to the rule book and the textbook, but you paint according to what's in your soul, don't you? You create out of the depth of who you are and who you've been made to be. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to paint. We're called to live. We're called to express our love for Jesus, for ourselves, and for the people around us out of the depth of who we've been made to be. 
This church community is a remarkable and a stunning and a beautiful place to be. And we will always be grateful for our time here. And one of the things that makes it beautiful is that people paint out of the depth of their soul of who they've been made to be. In the weeks, the months and the years to come, will you continue to do that as you choose to love Jesus, love yourselves and love the people around you? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you welcome us home. We thank you that when we come to you in rags that are torn, you give us a robe for our back, a ring for our finger, and you embrace us. And Jesus, I pray that you would day by day, week by week, year by year, Reveal the depth of that love to us. That wherever we go, whatever we do, we might be formed to reflect you. In your name we pray.